From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. The double homicide I describe in this episode occurred on a secure Coast Guard base near the town of Kodiak, Alaska, on Kodiak Island, approximately 60 miles from where I live. This murder happened toward the end of the most brutal winter anyone on Kodiak can remember, and when the police did not quickly apprehend the killer, tempers flared and citizens carried firearms wherever they went. Our mailplane pilot, reporting the news to us on his weekly stop, compared the residents in town to a powder keg, ready to blow. When it was all over, many in law enforcement and the judicial system praised the investigation. But at the time, it seemed as if no one was doing anything to look for and apprehend the killer. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Cold and miserable describe the winter of 2011-2012. It was one of the harshest winters on record in Alaska. On Kodiak Island, the temperatures in January averaged 9.1 degrees colder than normal. And for the period extending from October 2011 through May 2012, the temperatures dipped 4.7 degrees below average. Those temperature differences might not sound extreme, but I assure you it was a cold, miserable winter. Our water lines froze in early December, which is not uncommon, but usually when the lines freeze, we can pump water through a hose into holding containers in the house. And when it's too cold to use the pump, we can haul buckets of water to our house. In January 2012, though, the brutal cold completely froze the stream where we get our water. That had never happened before. Finding and collecting water became a chore consuming most of our days. But worse than finding water, our septic tank froze, and a frozen septic tank is not a good thing. In the town of Kodiak, the ground froze nearly six feet or two meters deep, down to where the water lines are buried. The frigid temperatures made life difficult, and in addition to being cold, Kodiak's snowfall during the winter of 2012 measured 212 percent above normal. Instead of the average 68.9 inches, or 175 centimeters, Kodiak received 145.9 inches, or 370.59 centimeters of snow. By the end of the winter, people were cranky and on edge. The U.S. Coast Guard base on Kodiak Island, established in 1972, is the largest Coast Guard base in the United States. 
The base supports approximately 1,000 active duty members, 1,700 family members, and several hundred civilian employees, many of whom have retired from active duty with the Coast Guard. Not only is the Coast Guard an important employer in the community, but it is often the lifeline for one of the largest fishing fleets in the country. The Coast Guard base on Kodiak is responsible for covering nearly 4 million square miles of the roughest oceans and most inhospitable terrain in the world. When a fishing boat takes on water in heavy seas, or a fisherman receives a head injury from a swinging crab pot, the Coast Guard speeds to the scene to offer assistance. We are not commercial fishermen, but we live in the wilderness and know if we suffer a life-threatening injury or experience a medical emergency, we can call the Coast Guard for help. The residents of Kodiak respect and welcome the Coast Guard as an important asset to our island community. And on those rare occasions when a Coast Guardsman or woman die during a daring rescue, we mourn those who gave their lives to protect us. The 2012 double murders at the Coast Guard's communication station shocked and saddened the residents of Kodiak. It is tragic but understandable when a guardsman dies during a high-risk rescue attempt. But a double murder made no sense. The U.S. Coast Guard base is located six miles south of the town of Kodiak via the Cheniac Highway. The U.S. Coast Guard communication station is not located on the main base, but it is a small installation on the other side of the highway down a side road. The turnoff to this side road is about one mile north of the main base. The Kodiak Airport and the Comfort Inn are also important to this story, and they sit on the same side of the highway as the main base and are located between the main base and the road leading to the communication station. Among other duties, guardsmen and women working at the communication station track aircraft, receive and relay messages from and to ships in distress, and transmit weather reports. The 2012 murders occurred in the Riggers shop next to the communication station. Those working in the Riggers shop are responsible for servicing and repairing the approximately 40 antennas for the Coast Guard communication stations across Alaska. It is important to note that while the main base is closely guarded and the communication station is located behind a secure fence, the Riggers shop is strangely unguarded. On April 12, 2012, meteorologists predicted the temperature on Kodiak would soar to 50 degrees. And if it did, the residents of the island would enjoy the warmest day since October. Spirits lifted in Kodiak with this promise of spring. But the upbeat moods didn't last long. Around 8.30 that morning, Rumors spread through town, indicating someone had been murdered at the Coast Guard base. When the rumors became more specific, and the whispers suggested the shooting happened at the rigger shop, the families of the small crew of men who worked there waited in dread. Soon, those rumors were confirmed. Not only had one man been killed, but two men were dead. 
Petty Officer First Class James Hopkins, 41, and Civilian Employee Richard Belisle, 51, had each been shot multiple times and had died in the rigor shop, their bodies discovered around 8 a.m. by a fellow employee. Richard Belisle had served in the Coast Guard for 23 years and had retired as a chief bosun's mate before returning to the Coast Guard to work as a civilian. Belle Isle, Hopkins, and a fellow civilian employee, James Wells, were scheduled to begin their shifts at 7 that morning. Wells had left two phone messages claiming he would be late for work because he had a flat tire. He did not report for duty until after the bodies were discovered. Residents of Kodiak responded to the shootings with rage and fear. Rich Belisle, a well-liked member of the community, had many friends. Rich was married and had three daughters. James Hopkins was married and had a son and daughter. The only other murder of a guardsman on a base in the U.S. occurred in 2001 on St. Paul Island, Alaska, a tiny island in the Bering Sea. The guardsman shot in that incident was reportedly having an affair with the shooter's wife. The U.S. Coast Guard is attached to the Department of Homeland Security, and since the murders occurred on a U.S. Coast Guard base, the FBI immediately assumed control of the investigation. The Alaska State Troopers aided the FBI in their inquiries. The FBI chose not to relay any information to the public about the progress of the investigation. And when they did not immediately arrest a suspect for the murders, their silence angered many Kodiak residents and created an atmosphere of fear and distrust in a community whose nerves were already stretched to the breaking point by the harsh, unrelenting winter. FBI spokesman Eric Gonzalez issued a statement saying, Nothing in this investigation has led the FBI to believe that anyone is in danger. While he said the residents of Kodiak were not in danger from the unknown killer, he did not bother to explain how the FBI knew this or what the FBI was doing to apprehend the killer. The FBI simply expected the residents of Kodiak to trust them. But nothing the FBI did earn the residents' respect or trust. Instead, people carried weapons, looked over their shoulders, and listened to rumors. The day after the murders, U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security Janet Napolitano made a statement saying her department placed a high priority on solving this crime and bringing the perpetrator to justice. She said she had directed the full resources of her department to support the investigation of these murders. On April 23rd, the FBI issued a news release describing two vehicles and asking residents to come forward if they had information concerning the whereabouts of these vehicles on April 12th and 13th. Residents were quick to note the descriptions of the cars matched those owned by James Michael Wells, the other civilian employee who was supposed to have been at his post at the rigor shop at the time of the murders. 
Wells claimed he was late for work that morning because he'd had a flat tire. James Wells and his wife, Nancy, lived in Bell's Flats, a small community about 10 miles from the town of Kodiak and a few miles down the Chiniac Highway south of the Coast Guard base. While the FBI volunteered no information, residents inferred much by their actions. They knew the FBI had searched the house of James and Nancy Wells after the shootings, and the Wells' vehicles had been towed away, but then returned to them. Residents, especially those in Bell's Flats, where murder victim Rich Belisle had lived and his co-worker James Wells still lived, knew that both men were retired from the Coast Guard, and up until the murders, they had worked together as civilian employees in the rigger shop. Rumors circulated about animosity between Wells, Belle Isle, and Hopkins. Wells, who had worked at the rigger shop for 20 years, had been disciplined several times in recent months. And he seemed to blame Belle Isle and Hopkins for his problems. Residents believed Wells was the obvious suspect in the murders, but authorities refused to name him or arrest him. Instead, as the local newspaper The Kodiak Mirror reported, Two FBI agents sat in a car across the road from the Wells house and watched the house around the clock. On May 1st, nearly three weeks after the murders, the Coast Guard made a request on Facebook for community volunteers, especially those with metal detectors, to help search the area around the rigger shop. The FBI said the search was related to the murders, but they did not tell the searchers what they were hoping to find. Residents recalled Napolitano promising to deploy the full resources of the Department of Homeland Security to investigate this crime. Now, though, it seemed instead of help from a huge government agency, the Coast Guard and FBI were asking citizens to bring their personal metal detectors to search for something near the crime scene. Residents began to wonder if Homeland Security and FBI agents knew what they were doing. And if they didn't, were the citizens truly safe or in danger from an unknown killer who had already murdered two men? Residents believed the purpose of the search was to look for the gun used in the murders. And when 100 residents showed up to search, everyone hoped the weapon would be found and an arrest would finally be made. Unfortunately, no weapon was found that day, and if anyone discovered anything of interest, the FBI did not report the find to the community. Agents reviewed the books of the gun shops on the island, but again, they did not reveal what they found. The investigation dragged on for several months, and still no arrest was made. The residents of Bell's Flats became more and more convinced that James Wells had murdered his co-workers, and Wells still lived and moved about their community, making everyone nervous as well as angry and frustrated with the slow progress of the investigation. Finally, on February 15, 2013, Ten months after the murders, authorities arrested James Michael Wells and charged him with two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of murder of an officer or employee of the United States, 
and two counts of possession and use of a firearm in relation to a crime of violence. Wells pleaded not guilty. At Wells' February 19th arraignment, FBI Special Agent Elizabeth Oberlander portrayed James Wells as a substandard Coast Guard civilian employee who had feuded with his co-workers and supervisors. Hopkins, the enlisted guardsman, was in charge of the rigor shop, but Wells refused to take orders from him. Wells failed to follow regulations and guidelines, and at one point he sabotaged several trees at the station so he could cut them down and use them for firewood at his home. In December 2011, a supervisor told Wells he needed to shape up or retire. A month later, the same supervisor told Wells he would not be sending him to the National Conference for Tower Erectors, a conference Wells usually attended. Instead, the supervisor planned to send Belle Isle and Hopkins to the conference. Belle Isle and Hopkins were murdered less than three months later. Oberlander admitted there were no eyewitnesses to the murder and no murder weapon had been found but she said enough circumstantial evidence existed to provide probable cause that James Michael Wells willfully, deliberately, maliciously, and with premeditation killed Hopkins and Belle Isle. The trial of James Michael Wells took place in April 2014 at the U.S. District Court in Anchorage. The jurors were selected from around the region, and the trial lasted 20 days. First responders testified that when they arrived at the murder scene, they saw no evidence of a break-in or robbery at the rigor station, and they said both men appeared to be victims of a targeted killing. U.S. Attorney Karen Leffler, the lead prosecutor in the case, played tapes of two interviews with Wells conducted by FBI agent Kirk Overlander shortly following the murders. In the first interview, Wells said he started to drive to work for his 7 a.m. shift at the rigor shop, but detected a soft tire and pulled into the parking lot of the Comfort Inn near the Kodiak Airport. He checked the tire, saw a nail in it, and returned home to change the tire. What Wells did not know was that a security camera on the main gate of the Coast Guard station recorded his truck heading toward the rigor shop at 6.48 a.m. and returning in the opposite direction toward his home at 7.22 a.m., a time lapse of 34 minutes. Wells claimed he drove toward the rigor shop, felt a soft tire, pulled into the hotel parking lot, and immediately headed back home to change the tire. In the second interview, Agent Overlander told Wells that he drove the same route Wells claimed he followed, and the trip took him only 10 minutes. He then asked Wells why it took him 34 minutes to stop, check his tire, and turn around to drive home. Wells stated, I don't have a reasonable explanation for it. I don't have a theory at the moment. At trial, Wells' defense attorney stated Wells suffered from chronic diarrhea as the result of a recent gallbladder surgery. 
and after checking his tire on the morning of the murders, he drove to the airport to use the bathroom at a commuter airline. The prosecution provided evidence showing no one at the airline remembered seeing Wells. And if this was Wells' explanation for the 34-minute time lapse, why didn't he tell this to the FBI when they first interviewed him? The FBI learned James Wells' wife, Nancy, was in Anchorage during the murders, and she left her blue SUV parked in the Kodiak Airport parking lot during her absence. James Wells drove a white truck to work on the morning of the murders. A blurry video taken by a camera near the rear of the rigger shop showed a blue SUV arriving at the shop just before the murders occurred. No one reported seeing the blue SUV, either on the road or parked at the communication station, but that one blurry video is proof it was there. FBI agents believe James Wells left home in his white pickup truck, drove to the airport, parked, switched to his wife's SUV, and drove to the rigger shop. He then shot Belle Isle and Hopkins to death, returned to the airport, left his wife's SUV there, and then drove home in his white truck. During this time period, he made two calls to work to report he'd had a flat tire and would be a few minutes late arriving for his shift. To support its argument, the prosecution played the two videos, one from the gate at the main base and the other from the camera outside the rigger shop. Attorneys said when Wells' wife returned from Anchorage, she told detectives her car had been moved while she was gone. An expert who examined the flat tire with a nail in it stated the nail had been shot into the tire with a nail gun, not picked up by driving over it on the road, as Wells claimed. According to the witness, the tire was not driven on after the nail was embedded in it. Finally, while investigators never found the murder weapon, they determined a 44 caliber gun had been used in the shootings, and they found 44 caliber ammunition in James Wells's house. A witness testified Wells borrowed a 44 caliber handgun from him several years earlier and had never returned it. After a 10-month investigation, and a 20-day trial with over 100 witnesses called to testify, a jury of six women and six men deliberated only six hours before finding James Michael Wells guilty on all six counts of the indictment. The judge sentenced Wells to four consecutive life sentences, two for killing James Hopkins and Richard Belisle, and two more for using a firearm in a violent crime. After being sentenced, Wells spoke briefly. He maintained his innocence and claimed a tragedy occurred and said, quote, We have all suffered for it. Nancy Wells stood by her husband throughout the trial, and even after he was convicted and sentenced, she continued to say she believed him innocent of the crime. The judge in the case condemned Wells for allowing his family to believe he was innocent when he knew better. Nancy Wells simply shook her head after this comment. After the trial ended, U.S. Attorney Karen Leffler, 
the lead prosecutor, praised investigators and her legal team. She said, This was a long road to justice for the families of Richard Bell Isle and James Hopkins, the United States Coast Guard community, and the citizens of Kodiak. The guilty verdicts were the result of the superb investigative effort of the FBI and Coast Guard Investigative Service, and I am very proud of the work of the members of the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Alaska and our special assistant U.S. Attorney from the U.S. Coast Guard Judge Advocate General. We are very pleased that the lengthy and meticulous investigation of this brutal crime has resulted in the conviction of the person responsible. Attorney Leffler had a right to be proud of the conviction of James Wells with only circumstantial evidence. There were no witnesses and no weapon was ever found, but she and her associates presented such a compelling case, the jury returned a guilty verdict in only six hours. It is unfortunate, though, that the FBI and the other investigators in this case were not able either to arrest well sooner or release enough information to the Kodiak community to calm people's fears and assure the residents the investigation was moving forward. I don't think the FBI needed to maintain a news blackout throughout the investigation, and I'm not sure they understand even now what a toll their silence took on the community, and especially on the victims' families. At the sentencing hearing, Rich Belisle's wife, Nicola, said she lived in fear for more than 10 months while her husband's killer remained free. And she said more than once she huddled in her house with a loaded firearm because her dogs barked at something outside the house. Maybe if authorities had released more information or arrested well sooner, Nicola Belisle would not have suffered the double insult of losing her husband and her security. In August 2016, Nicola Belisle and James Hopkins' widow, Deborah, filed a suit against the United States of America for the wrongful deaths of their husbands. They asked for $1 million each. They alleged that the U.S. Coast Guard knew or should have known James Wells was a dangerous, disgruntled employee with several reprimands and disciplinary sanctions, and he posed a serious threat to other employees. It seemed as if the winter of 2012 would never end. On May 13th, 2.4 inches of snow fell on the island, and then, finally, temperatures began to rise. Most of the winter since 2012 have been unseasonably warm, and now those few brutal months remain a distant memory. The lives of the Kodiak residents returned to normal after James Wells was convicted and sent to prison. Unfortunately, though, the saga of James Wells continued in 2017, when the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals overturned Wells' conviction and ordered a new trial. The court cited several problems with the original trial, but their biggest concern was the testimony by a forensic psychologist. They believed this testimony should not have been allowed at trial. The next trial for James Wells took place in Anchorage on October 8, 2019, and the jury again found Wells guilty 
on all counts. Thank you for listening, and please check the show notes to find references for this podcast. I am an author, and I write Alaska Wilderness Mysteries. I've written four novels set in the wilderness of Kodiak Island. I also write a monthly newsletter about murder and mystery in Alaska. Check the show notes for more information on my novels and my newsletter. I'll be back soon with the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the last frontier.